Welcome to the U-Turn Podcast. This is the place to connect to who you truly are. We're bringing PhDs, experts, and leaders to help you elevate your mindset in your work life and in your love life so that you can see things differently and truly love your world. I'm Ashley Stahl. I'm a career expert, author, and TEDx speechwriter and booker, and I'm excited to bring you in to this week's episode. My friends, okay, so if there's anything I've learned about all of you, it's that the love category seems to be the most popular on the show, and one of the most downloaded episodes we've ever had is around keeping the spark alive, and I know that this is so present, and I feel like in the realness of relationships, there's so many questions we have around dating, like dating each other, keeping that fire, um, sex, like So that's why I wanted to bring Dr. Kate Balistrieri onto the show. She's a licensed psychologist and sex therapist. She's the founder of Modern Intimacy, and she earned her doctorate of clinical psychology from the Illinois School of Professional Psychology in Chicago with a concentration in forensic psychology. And during her pre-doctoral internship, she conducted evaluations and treatment for those committed at the Illinois Department of Human Services Sexually Violent Persons Program. So her work in all locations has centered in helping people recover from trauma, addiction, sex, and relationship concerns. And I mean, I've got so many questions for her. So Dr. Kate, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thank you so much for the invitation to be on your show. I'm really looking forward to this conversation today. Yeah, I um I'm really excited to have you. I feel like I might have seen you floating around on the Instagrams. Like I think there was a reel or something of you saying something that really sat with me. Um what got you interested in this particular facet of psychology? <clears throat> um well, I think that sexuality is a really it's a really big topic, right? And most folks think on some level, that because they have sex, they know a lot about sex. I thought that too. But the reality is we do not know a lot about sex at all. Um, and so as I've been in this work and in this field, I, I wanted to get into an area of focus that would allow me to understand that infinite interplay between sexuality, mental health, identity, and relationships. So becoming a sex therapist gave me that space and the journey to this to this path has been <clears throat> lined with other experiences in trying to understand the role that sexuality plays in people's lives. As you mentioned in reading my bio, I used to work with convicted sex offenders, and that really opened my eyes to the way that sex is put to work for other psychological needs and interests, and namely things like feeling powerful or feeling in control, things of that nature. And so it allowed me to see kind of the dark side of how sex is exploited in our culture, in our world. And the evolution from that has been really in, in understanding how do we move from a place of pain or suffering with our sexuality into a place where sex is something that's empowered, something that's safe, something that's exciting, and of course, pleasurable. Mm, okay. So, I mean, I actually just watched the movie last night, Sound of Freedom. Mm-hmm. Have you seen that one? The Sound I have not yet. About the child trafficking, and it was like really chilling to start to get into the psychology of like pedophiles and, you know, child pornography and 
how did you how did you hold yourself like how, how did you sit in that energy because there is such a dark feeling to it even if there's people in front of you who want to heal like how do you navigate those personalities and energies a lot of the work that clinicians do when they first get into that space is around learning how to just regulate themselves. And when you're in that kind of a setting, a, a correctional environment, it's really important to understand the dynamics of that sort of space and to understand that really folks there are geared towards survival. That's the primary goal. And when you understand that, you understand that a lot of the behavior that you see and that happens in that setting is designed around a survival of the fittest kind of mentality. So the stealing of our own uh, emotional regulation as clinicians is really important so that we have less possibility of kind of getting captured in that, that underbelly of psychological warfare. Um, so a lot of the work that I did it, just being in a correctional setting really helped prime me for understanding the benefits of being non-reactive when people were talking about sexually charged material. And I know I went on to teach many courses at the graduate level, but one of the courses that I did teach for a few years was uh, sexual abuse and human trafficking, mm -hmm. really understanding the ways in which people exploit the vulnerabilities of intimacy and human dependency needs and, and connection to support their desire for money, power, control, social currency, things of that nature. So I've just been studying this work for a long, long time and really focused on understanding how power and sexuality and identity are, are grossly intertwined. Okay. So kind of a shift of gears, but I feel like one area that people feel powerless um, just in everyday relationships is around sexual discrepancy. And I know you do a lot of work on that. So mm -hmm. I imagine some people are listening right now, and this was even in a live topic for them as recent as this morning, the day that they're listening, where it's like, they are in this, like, they go to bed at night and there's like this stickiness inside of them. That's like, dang, me and my partner are on totally different pages sexually and the desire is going away or there's resentment or God knows what. I've been in a relationship where I had a partner whose sexual preferences were so far from what was a yes for me. And so I would try to like go over to his side of the fence, but I was like, by the end of it, I was like, I literally feel like I hate you by the end of this because I don't want to oh. do this. Yeah. Um, to you know, to this day, we're friends. But the point being, I think a lot of people feel this like hopelessness, and I know that you've probably seen that in your practice. So, what would be your overarching message for people who are suffering in that space right now, and also just like some actionables we can give them to start to recover or feel more optimism? Yeah, it's it's a really it's a big question and, and and I'll try to answer it kind of simply, but desire is something that we have a lot of misinformation about, right? A lot of folks believe that desire should be spontaneous and kind of ever flowing and always in sync with our partner and that constitutes a healthy relationship, right? But we're not hungry at the same time our partner's hungry, we're not tired at the same time our partner is tired, we're not thirsty at the same time. So it's it's really uh, not sustainable to think that we're always going to want to have sex at the same time our partner does and vice versa. So when we look at what factors into desire, we look at things like 
identity, um, time management, uh, stress, medical concerns, and our overall physical health, hormone levels. Um, And then how we share things like fantasy and the inspiration for desire. And I think that's a place where a lot of couples start getting really stuck because they often will want similar kinds of things, whether that's similar kinds of sexual play or just to be sexual. But they they kind of lose track of how to cultivate erotic energy between the two of them when they're going through the day-to-day life. You know, when when we're dating, it's a lot easier to kind of have this idea of sex being a possibility in these contained time, sp- time spans, right? You go on a date, there's usually the idea that sex might happen at on a date. But when you're living with someone every single day, day to day, that starts to become less clear because you're managing doing things like your laundry and your taxes and getting the groceries and cleaning the dishes. And so we don't really have this like protected time or designated time for romance or sex the way that perhaps you once did as partners. So I think that in conjunction with just some realities about desire, sometimes being spontaneous, but sometimes being more responsive, meaning that you've got to kind of get get your body in the mood. And that usually involves a lot of non-sexual touching or um, intimacy, which can be hard and frustrating for folks who want to be sexual to engender that kind of intimacy with their partner, not knowing if it's going to lead anywhere. So I think sometimes couples get stuck in a, in a, a bit of a standoff where they're not trying to disappoint each other, but they end up disappointing each other mm. in the ways that they're trying to protect themselves or one another. Got it. Okay. And um, I feel like one looming question for a lot of people listening is probably just like, are we too far apart? Are we on separate pages? And did we miss this in the honeymoon period and commit to each other? Because I feel like those chemicals are so powerful and like the their ability to help like to prevent you from truly seeing what the deal is with two people can be mm-hmm. so real. So you know, um, what would be your message around that? Because I, I imagine there's some people whose partner is like super into like kink or threesomes or something that for them feels, you know, and everybody do whatever they want, no judgment here, but like maybe for the other person, it feels like off the beaten path, really scary, not a yes at all. Um, or even like non-monogamy. Some people want to hall pass. Mm-hmm. They want to not be monogamous all the time. And for someone else, that's an absolute no. So what would be your message around like, when do you actually take a look at it and say like, wait a minute, we might actually need to part ways. Like this is not workable. Well, it really depends on if you have immutable differences in the kind of sex that you're interested in versus differences in the frequency or intensity of your libido and desire. Um, Sometimes those things overlap, which can make it really challenging. If one couple is Real, has really high higher libido and um, and wants a more expansive relationship with sex, and the other partner may not feel as open to some of the things that their partner is interested in, and also has lower desire. So sometimes these things can become confounding because if there is a mismatch in sexual interest, then sometimes that can engender uh, a greater disparity in sexual desire and libido. So I think the first question is to really sit down and think about, are we far off in terms of what turns us both on? And if the answer is yes, that's 
some people might get really frustrated with that, but I sort of see it as an opportunity because if you're really far away from each other in terms of what you like, getting more curious about what it is about those things that you both like can actually open up more of a middle ground. So if somebody is interested in having threesomes, for example, and their, their partner is not. So the question becomes, well, what do you get out of the threesomes? Is it novelty? Is it being able to see the expression on your partner's face when someone else pleases them? Is it doing something that's naughty and taboo? Whatever it might be. Once you can identify the part of it that's really exciting, can you find other amenable solutions within your own um, cachet of interest that could help to kind of meet in the middle? So for some partners, that's enough of a solution and they can make that work um, and they feel excited by that. And for other partners, the chasm is so great that they might consider things like um, opening their relationship once in a, once in a while, once in a blue moon under certain circumstances, they might consider erotic medium as a way to kind of fill the void for what their partner's not interested in doing with them. So what would you cool mean by like, erotic medium for people who might not be familiar with what that means? Yeah. Um, porn. So either visual video porn, uh, written porn, audio porn, there's a lot of different kinds of erotic media out there. And, if you source ethically produced porn, then it can be a really strong um, solution where you know other people aren't being exploited and it can be a safer place to kind of bridge the gaps. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that that can sound really scary at first for couples is to consider monogamy and why you've chosen it if you've chosen it, right? For a lot of people, monogamy is pretty compulsory. And we just kind of enter into it because there's an assumption that that is the right path or the best path, but it really isn't the only path. And in fact, humans were not monogamous um, until around the industrial revolution. And that's a whole other topic we can go down another time, but um, monogamy is an invention and it works well for many couples, but for many couples, it doesn't. And so a lot of sex therapists are now looking at helping couples define a kind of fidelity that actually feels like monogamy in many ways, especially emotionally and um, financially and from a parenting perspective, but may include a more expanded relationship with sexuality to invite in other partners or other kinds of play that actually enhances the couple's sexuality together. So it's still a sort of open monogamy design is still designed to enhance the relationship together. So sometimes that can feel like an option that can bring couples closer together and can help them stave off what might feel like an inevitable separation. But sometimes it doesn't work and you're just so far away. And so every interaction that you have sexually or don't have becomes a source of pain or resentment or frustration. And in those cases, I do think if working with a sex therapist doesn't help solve the, the, the chasm between you, then parting ways could be the best solution. Right. Okay. And I know that there's probably some science you can share around the turn on process for those who identify as men versus those who identify as women. Like, 
um, or like have the that genitalia, like such a I, I don't know why it's like I never say the word genitalia, like I say like vag, <laughs> like I'm so much more crude. But um, can you tell me a little bit about like there's the science? Like I feel like for men, it feels sometimes like a light switch, like they're on or they're off. Whereas for women the turn on seems to be like scientifically a little more complex as far as like it takes more time for them to lubricate. Um, and I feel like we see all these movies where it's like they just get caught up and off they go. But I feel like the reality for a lot of people who, like you said, they're like doing the laundry, having their day, da, da, da. Um, what can we share to educate people around like that turn on process? Yeah, such a great question. Um, <clears throat> so the science what the research shows us is that about 75% of people assigned male at birth uh, identify as having spontaneous desire as their default. And so what spontaneous desire is, is that light switch, right? They might think of something, see something, and then boom, all of a sudden in their mind, they're like, yes, I'm ready. And so arousal starts cognitively before it starts in their bodies. About 15% of, of people assigned female at birth identify spontaneous desire as their default or their most familiar kind of desire. Responsive desire, on the other hand, um, is a little bit different. So responsive desire starts in the body first. So imagine this is kind of where that warm-up comes in, right? And where non-sexual touch is really important for a lot of folks. So that could look like hugging your partner, caressing their face, um, kissing, uh, kissing the back of their neck, touching their stomach, whatever it is that, you know, gets your partner going, kind of going from the bottom up, right? So from the body into the mind is a way that that responsive desire turns on. It does tend to be a little bit slower. And I think the data on that is something around 30% of women or people assigned female at birth identify that as their default, whereas about think it's about 5% of people assigned male at birth identify with responsive desire being their main. But here's the thing. We actually don't know if those are biologically originating differences or if that is something that has been conditioned into both genders over time because men are conditioned to think sexually, to be sexually, to, to engage in sexual behavior. Whereas women for millennia have been conditioned to hide their sexuality, tamp it down, only bring it out in certain circumstances when it benefits a male partner. So it's hard to know um, how much of it's related to gender socialization versus an organic biological difference. Mm, okay. I love this. And I feel like there's so many people who are probably listening and thinking about this like responsive versus spontaneous desire. Mm -hmm. um, okay. So let's say someone's listening right now, maybe their mom, they had a baby, they're in the whole daily vibe and they're just kind of uninspired. Like they feel like they're roommates, like in their partnership. How do you even get started to inspire your partner or even yourself to kind of get things back online? Great question. It's, it's hard, right? Because the other thing I'll say about desire is that sex doesn't have to be a huge priority at every part of your life. And there might just be phases in your life where you're okay with sex taking a lesser, a, a lesser center stage, if you will. Um, so I hear this a lot from people who have had children recently 
they want to have sex conceptually, but finding time for it, being in their bodies after having a baby or being touched out makes feeling aroused physiologically difficult for them. And so I think there's a couple of things to do. One is to get curious together about how you're supporting each other in those early months and years when you've had children. Because if you are the default parent, it, everything falls on you. And that can be so draining emotionally, cognitively, and especially physically, especially if um, a parent is breastfeeding. So it's really important to think about like, how do I lighten my partner's load if they're the default parent and free up time and space for them to reconnect with themselves physically, physiologically, emotionally, because without that, it's really hard to cultivate desire. So for couples who have the resources, I often recommend getting some babysitters that you trust, um, having your own hobbies and your time, time apart from each other and apart from your kids so that you are constantly reinvigorating your own identity and you have something to bring to the dynamic between the two of you. And when couples do that, then they have all of this novelty that just lives between them because they have enough space to be rediscovering each other all the time. When we get into like the humdrum of everyday life, we start to habituate and see each other as part of the wallpaper on the house. And it's a lot more challenging to feel aroused when you're so familiar. Mm, okay. I love this. And I love your permission slip that like sex doesn't have to be at the forefront of different eras of your life. I feel like that is such good permission for some people that even though we ideally don't want to need permission, it's it's a good one. Okay. I've heard this from some listeners like they love their partner. The sex is quote unquote fine, but it's not the best sex they've ever had. I feel like that's very common where mm -hmm. they kind of like, what was that show on Netflix sex life? Mm -hmm. uh, like there's that fantasy of that like phantom X or that phantom sex that they had that they like kind of are grieving like, oh my God, I'm never going to have that again. It just Maybe it was something about that partner's literal penis. I have no idea. Like, <laughs> what would be your feedback for people who are like grieving that and feeling that? A couple of years ago, I made a post on Instagram about how it's okay to grieve the sex that you'll never have again, because it's so common that we do have a period of mourning or even a longing for a kind of sex that we've known before, but doesn't exist in our current partnership or a kind of sex that we want, but we've never had, never, never been able to cultivate. So I think that grief is a really healthy piece of our development to lean into. And it's okay to grieve that. It's also okay to think about whether or not there are ways that you can get closer to that with your current partner, if that's what you want. So for a lot of people, what I hear most is that there's a passion that was part of their previous hotter sexual experience than what exists now. And cultivating that passion is, is work. It takes effort when you know each other for a long time. You know, we, it, I think a lot of people will laugh, like you always have the best sex with the most toxic person in your life. Yeah. And part of that is because emotionally you're so far apart. So there's a lot of psychological distance and wanting that can happen. And when you feel safer in relationship, safety is great. It allows our attachment needs to feel more seen and more healed, but safety is sort of the antithesis of 
eroticism because what feels safe often requires a lot of familiarity and closeness and we need space and tension for erotic heat to grow. So you kind of find ways to kind of develop some novelty and some newness with each other. And sometimes that can help, but also that's why a lot of people turn to role-playing and kink and other forms of intensity that they can bring into the partnership to kind of elevate more, um, more of an adrenaline. Mm. Okay. One of my closest friends is not monogamous. Um, her name's Amanda Bucci. I don't know if you know Amanda, but she is polyamorous. And I feel like because you touched on monogamy and the industrial revolution, like, can you just share a little bit about that? Because I think some people listening, like this show for me is all about people being who they are with a full support. And so to me, if someone's listening right now, maybe this is the first time they've ever even thought, like, maybe I'm not meant to be monogamous. Mm -hmm. And by the way, how do we even know that versus just commitment phobia? Like, I'm in the place right now where I actually love monogamy. I have, like, such safety stuff, like growing up with a highly stressed, unavailable dad. You know, I need a lot of safety, a lot of things that are benefits from a monogamous structure. But I know that a lot of people maybe don't have that. And um, so, A, how do we know if we're feeling commitment phobic versus maybe non-monogamous? And can you share a little bit more about what non-monogamy can look like for people? Because I imagine there's all sorts of dynamics at play. Like some people want to have kids. How does that look? What does it even mean? It sounds complicated. Like just any sort <laughs> of information for people. Yeah. These are such big topics. I'll try to do them justice. I always do this. <laughs> Um, so just a, a little bit of history, monogamy started because of the industrial revolution and capitalism. And we, we moved away from living in community with one another to living in this sort of, um, this like two person family system. Yeah. But so we moved away from communal living into this like dyadic way of living where, men were sort of given a wife and children and, and these single family households started occurring. So we lost a lot of support that we had from communal living. And when people lived in community, they had children with one another and everybody participated in the um, feeding of the community, the raising of the children and, and the survival of the group, right? So when we moved to these nuclear family systems, now we have less to depend on. And so I hear you when you're saying like the fear of commitment, it's hard to separate what is a fear of actual commitment without looking at contextually how we've been conditioned to only depend on one person as our, like our primary person, right. because humans were never designed to live that way. So when folks branch out into consensual non-monogamy, there often is um, a focus on having strong community around. So some folks will have um, secondary partners or tertiary partners that live with them and help in the raising of their children. Some people will exist in polyamorous relationships that are part of um, triads or, or quads or even polycules where, you know, groups of people agree to be polyfidelitous within this, this group, right? And so there are endless configurations of how to make it work. And children who are raised in these environments 
often don't understand the sexual component of the multiple relationships, but they do understand that these other adults are in their lives and it becomes a very healthy source of having additional adults around. Um, so it, it can be really healthy, really beautiful, really functional. And it is a lot of work. It's a lot more work than, than um, monogamy is because it does require rigorous communication, transparency, honesty. These are all core ethos of polyamorous or consensually non-monogamous relationships. Without that, it's not consensual non-monogamy, right? Non-monogamy happens all the time in monogamous relationships. It's just not consensual or ethical. It's done you know, underneath the, the guise of deception. Yeah, I um, actually want to ask you about that too. It was interesting. My friend Amanda, who is in a poly relationship, I went to her wedding and she married her partner and they want to have kids together. Um, and I actually was assigned at the lover's table. Like, not that that was what it was called, but like his lover was at the table. Her lover was at the table at their wedding. And it was actually really fun for me to see the vibe and the difference in the energies amongst all of them. And also to see how supportive her family was, because even though that non-monogamy is like an open option in this world and it might not be the one that I'm choosing, I know that it's a great fit for some people and to see um, her family, who's like arguably like baby boomer parents, like so like behind her in the best way was so nice. So I imagine there's some people listening right now where like they want to explore that. Like, would you recommend them getting a therapist or how can they get started in actually cementing that clarity? Because, you know, I imagine, you know, there's people like me that maybe are just afraid of committing um, like I'm not afraid of a relationship, but like, I don't know, I've made it to age 36 and haven't married the wrong person and I want to marry the right one. I feel like for the people who are looking to just cement that, um, what would you say they should do first? Just start getting that answer. For me, education is the key because with education comes the ability to have a better sense of how you might feel in a certain, and, and as you expand your relationship um, or your own parameters around consensual non-monogamy, you can never fully predict how you're going to feel, right? And that's part of the beauty of CNM because the rigorous communication requires lots of debriefing, lots of checking in with all of the partners that you engage in. But education is the place to start. So there are a couple of great books that are really amazing. There's The Ethical Slut, um, Open Deeply, Polyamory Toolkit, written by a therapist, is one of my absolute favorites. Um, and working with a sex therapist who does specialize or have training in, in working with consensual non-monogamy, in my opinion, is one of the smartest ways to get started because the therapist can help you have a neutral space to, to, to teach you how to communicate with each other if that's something that already feels hard, um, but also how to set up boundaries and how to set up space to communicate and engage in aftercare and debriefing with one another and can teach you more about how to address the different privileges that might exacerbate difficulty in the dynamic. Um, so it's a great way to kind of be proactive. And the couples that do that tend to have better outcomes mm -hmm. because again, it does require more effort. So having relationships requires relational skills and polyamorous and ethically non-monogamous non relationships are no different. Mm -hmm. 
Okay. So um, I know that one challenge a lot of people might have, no matter what their preference is, is just around like getting in touch with their feminine energy, especially, you know, and, and this doesn't have to be men or women, this could be anyone, but I feel like um, we are so, and I feel like this is so trite to say, but we are so in go mode, you know, like I'm traveling to Colorado for an herbalism certification next week and I stacked all my meetings this week. So it's like, I'm in so much doing this week. And I know a lot of people feel that way. How do we um, maybe advise anyone listening with some tools to kind of reconnect to their feminine energy to soften and move into receptivity so that they can go into that sexual space with themselves, with their partner in any area? Yeah. Well, I, I, I personally don't use the language of masculine and feminine energy anymore because of the danger that comes with assigning gender coded language to any kind of behavior. But I think about sort of a doing and receiving or, or, active and passive. And I think we all benefit from having a strong balance of both, um, regardless of our sex assigned at birth or our gender. Um, but to get more in touch with that kind of feeling or receptive or passive or open kind of energy does require a bit of interoception. And interoception is the practice of being perceptive of what's going on inside of us. Mm. And that is about slowing down and starting to pay more attention to what's happening in your body. So some easy ways to start getting more into that are things like practicing different kinds of breath work and breathing exercises so that you can notice the sensations in your body and figure out kind of what feels alive for you. Some breathing exercises downregulate our nervous system and bring more calm. Some breathing exercises invite more activation in our body. So we can use breath to think about how do we slow down or how do we enliven when we're feeling maybe a bit uninspired. So that's one way. Doing some basic stretching can also be a great way to get more in your body. Mm. Practicing yoga that is not yoga for exercise, but yoga for practice and connection to yourself is a great strategy. Um, sometimes Pilates or just gentle stretching, gentle movement, dance, um, anything like that can help bring us down south below our eyeballs and, and into our body. And that's that's the place to start in developing bodily awareness. And that bodily awareness is so key in helping us to understand what our boundaries are, what our needs are, and what pleasure feels like. Okay, so um, I know that people, we all are so different. We all have different needs, requests. And there's so many dynamics in our attachment styles to like feeling hard, like, you know, based on what your dynamic was with your parents, we learned that we're heard and we're seen or that we're not or that whatever the story is, you know. Um, and so I know for a lot of people making requests around sexuality is going to feel really uncomfortable. Um, how do you recommend connecting with a partner, like from a communication standpoint and making an ask like, I had some listeners reach out and say like their partner won't do floor play and they keep asking for it. Um, there's got to be a certain point, just like anything where you're like, I don't even want to ask anymore. So yeah, 
just any tools or thoughts on that I think would be really useful. I mean, I'm going to say something that that is not really super realistic for everyone, but if you've asked multiple times and your partner refuses to engage in the work with you, throw the whole partner out, start over. And I, I just really feel so firmly that if leaving is available, at some point, it's important to ask yourself, why am I okay with a partner who's not willing to meet me? Right. Mm-hmm. And and our partner cannot meet all of our needs all of the time. That's unrealistic. But when it comes to something like sex and desire and foreplay, if your partner's not willing to be curious with you and to work on finding a resolution, right? I never want people to do things that they're uncomfortable doing or don't want to do. I'm not encouraging that at all. And if there's no effort to find resolution, that is a win-win. That to me is problematic and is not really about sex. It's about what's going on. Is there a power struggle? Is there um, just a a lack of effort in general to move the relationship forward? And it's really important to ask oneself the question, am I okay being with someone who does not care if I am hurt or does not care if my needs remain perpetually unmet? Because unfortunately, and especially in cishet relationships, um, there are a lot of uh, women who identify with what you just said and feel as if their partner is not willing to meet them. Mm. And that's the reason we have a huge orgasm gap between straight men and straight women in cishet relationships. There's just a a dearth of effort that uh, many women are seeing in their partners. Mm. Okay. I mean, it's so interesting because like the whole idea of leaving, I feel like for some people, that's just like a healthy, neutral choice to make. And then for others, it might be more embedded in a wound. Like maybe people Mm -hmm. want to soon. They haven't really tried. What does it really mean for your needs not to get met? Have they heard you? Have you really, you know, um, but I think these are good things to think about. And um, I want to also ask just about emotionally unavailable partners, because I Mm -hmm. think sex and emotional availability go hand in hand. And I think this is just common. Usually there's one person that is more vulnerable than another. Like that's just the vibe that I see all the time. So um, what would be your message around that? Because I imagine that has to show up in your sex life with each other. I think it does. And, and emotional availability can mean a lot of different things. Um, so what it could show up, how it could show up is in exactly what you just described. Someone's not willing to be emotionally vulnerable enough to do the work, to lean into meeting their partner's sexual needs. Sometimes that's born out of entitlement. Sometimes that's born out of um, a capacity gap, right? They don't know how to get where they've never been. So it can look like a doubling down because it's really about fear, right? And not wanting to disappoint their partner. So as I said before, it's not realistic to just leave right away. And I know lots of people wouldn't want to do that, nor am I recommending bolting at the first go of emotional unavailability. But when you have a pattern of somebody who's not willing to stretch and grow enough, right? And who's to say how much is enough? That's for each each partnership. Yeah, each partnership has to define that for one another. And the emotionally available person, by the way, is not the better partner. I'm not trying to position these as better or worse. But we have to look at 
goodness of fit. And so if one person is not able or willing to kind of lean in more and make themselves more vulnerable, that's going to clip the the growth of the relationship. And that might be okay for partners, right? They might say, this is actually workable for me. This this allows me to feel safe enough. And I like this and, and it works. But if there's a huge amount of turmoil because one partner is really trying to go and and grow in a big direction, then that chasm is going to facilitate a lot of resentment for both partners. And at some point, there's a mirror there because the emotional unavailability in one partner actually will start to reflect emotional unavailability in the other partner. Because if you're not willing to make a decision that actually is the best decision for you in that growth that is very important to you, then are you actually as emotionally available to yourself as you want to believe? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. So final question-ish, um, <laughs> over-functioning. Um, speaking on the topic of emotional availability, I feel like a lot of partnerships have one person that maybe is like operating at a higher level and putting more energy out to keep things together, to keep things working. Um, so maybe the person is listening right now. They're like, yeah, that's me. I'm doing everything to keep this relationship moving forward and growing. Um, do you have anything to share with that person who is kind of like the do it all person and like holding on tight? Um, and you know what? I don't want to believe that maybe their partner isn't down to be that person. Some people just like, it's almost like waiters that like pour water in your cup before you even water. (laughs) Right. Um, like the overhelpers. So I don't know. Um, anything for those people listening. Absolutely. As a recovering overfunctioner, I can say it is hard to step out of that role, but so necessary. And the thing is, we are conditioned to be in that role for many reasons. Most folks get conditioned into that overfunctioning role as children. It benefited their family system for them to be on top of everyone's needs and to smooth things out before anyone else was even aware that there was a ripple. And so that carries forward into adult lives and adult relationships in a way that sets you up for a tremendous amount of burnout and resentment and frustration and a perpetual dynamic of not having your needs witnessed, seen, or met with any kind of real reciprocity. And the only way to get out of that feeling is to stop overfunctioning, which is probably one of the scariest places for an overfunctioner to live because relationships will change and some relationships will end because the other person benefited so much from your overfunctioning that they may not understand why you need something different and, and or they may not understand how to meet your needs because they've become so reliant on the system mm-hmm. of the relationship where they've not had to do or think or be any different. So that's a scary place to be for partners. Sometimes when the overfunctioning partner stops, the other partner does rise to the occasion and they do create more equilibrium together. But in that, that time and space, when it's uncertain, there can be a lot of grief. There can be a lot of anger. There can be a lot of conflict. So I think it's really key to get support by other people from other people who have been on the path and who have moved through some of the grief and the frustration and the resentment. 
but also think about how are you showing up for you in those moments? And I don't mean to support a hyper-individualistic mindset, but people who over-function are conditioned to self-abandonment all the time. So recentering yourself is the key to rebalancing a relationship. Sometimes it'll happen in the relationships that you're in. Many times you'll develop new relationships and see some of your current relationships, you know, dis- dissolve. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, final, final question for real is around <laughs> sure. cheating, which is like a super loaded topic. But we we had an interview on the show with a researcher and over three decades, she and I'm trying to remember the name of the person, but she found like a majority of people in monogamous relationships cheat mm-hmm. um i feel like people cheat even when they're in love like so i would love any insight you have on like what's going on beneath the surface with that because i know that a lot of the cheating and is quote-unquote just sex right like um these primal urges or i don't really know i'm no expert so any insight you have on that it's really nuanced and complicated um and does have some roots in this compulsory monogamy that I talked about before, right? A lot of folks, a lot of sex therapists think about um, monogamy as a continuum, right? Just like we would sexual orientation and gender uh, or preferences around being more vanilla or kinkier, everything is a continuum and monogamy is the same way. So when we look at how some folks feel really safe and centered and alive in in more monogamous relationships, others feel more alive in non-monogamous, consensually non-monogamous relationships. But because we've lived in a culture that has force-fed us monogamy as the only right and just way to be in relationships, a lot of folks whose orientation toward non-monogamy are going to find themselves in monogamous relationships. And so they're living under the confines of a, a relationship system that actually doesn't fit who they are organically. And that's a big part of why we see a lot of infidelity. Mm-hmm. But another factor is the ways in which folks are socialized in their sexuality. So for cishet men, a lot of men are socialized to to perform sexuality, to demonstrate their masculinity. So that also complicates infidelity rates because a lot of men are acting with other extra relational partners as a way to kind of shore up a sense of masculinity within themselves and a sense of virility. So it's not really about pleasure. It's about proving something to themselves. So there's that. And there's an entitlement piece that comes with that kind of sexual acting out. Um, And then for a lot of folks, infidelity is about reclaiming something within themselves that isn't necessarily related to gender, but could be related to feeling youthful or feeling desired or feeling important or special or creative. And for others, it's uh, infidelity becomes the choice because there's an absence of feeling fully met in their relationship, but they also love their partner and they want this other kind of sexual experience. So the reasons are myriad and the the pain is pretty consistent, right? So I'm a huge fan of folks creating an intentional definition of fidelity that works for them. And instead of, you know, kind of 
unconsciously going toward this definition of monogamy that might feel really over-controlling for what their needs are together in general. Mm. This was such a diverse, I think, useful conversation for people listening. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Kate. Where can everybody ideally come find you? I know you have your site, Modern Intimacy. Pot, like, tell me where is the best place to go? Oh, thank you. And thank you for inviting me again. This was a great conversation. I hope it's helpful for anyone listening. Um, Modernintimacy.com is my website and definitely the best place to go to find out where else you can reach me. But people can listen to my podcast, Get Naked with Dr. Kate on all the channels um, and Instagram and TikTok. I am at Dr. Kate Balistrieri. Mm, Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning into the U-Turn podcast. And thank you again so much for our sponsors. We are here because of you and to our listeners. Thank you for checking out our sponsors. We always pick people and brands that we trust and we believe in. And just for listening to the show, writing your reviews on the Apple app, and just being willing to make your own U-Turns. We'll see you next week. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join podcast royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox or wherever you listen to your podcasts.